Do you hear that? It's the winds of change. Don't call it a comeback. That's just November being November. The hunt for Red October turns into a rally to remember. Biggest gains in months makes you want to be a member, not a guest, not a passive onlooker, but an active investor. Searching for some splendor across sectors like a bee sipping nectar, like Tiger with the wedge, like Clouseau the inspector. Hunting for clues that this rally is for certain. It's the market's favorite season. Open up the curtain. Bring on the players. Our portfolio's been hurting. Fishing for a bottom and need a support. We need a winner. Gotta rip across court like Serena. Push it coast to coast like Mike. Metaphors be dropping like Ella with a mic. In his hand, cool James is never stressed. He just rides around the way on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And it is okay to exhale, at least for now. Stock snapped a three-week losing streak to bounce back in typical mid-fall fashion as bond yields cooled and the Fed breathed some dovish tones across the capital markets. As expected, the Fed left interest rates alone and kind of gave the impression that another rate hike this year is not exactly a certainty and a recession is not necessarily unavoidable. The snap did not put a recession back in. Uh, I mean, it would be hard to see how you would do that if you look at the, um, look at the activity we've seen recently. Uh, which is not really indicative of, of a recession in the near term. So the Fed doesn't see a recession coming, but a lot of CEOs do. Interesting. A softer-than-expected October jobs report also played into the narrative as employers added just 150,000 jobs last month and the Labor Department revised the September and August gains lower. Maybe, just maybe, the labor market is not as strong as we all thought it was and wage gains are also starting to taper off. Average hourly earnings, one of the Fed's key inflation indicators, rose just 0.1% last month and seemed to be leveling off at around 4%. To be sure, U.S. employers have added an average of about 260,000 jobs a month for the past year, so labor demand is still a thing. But with the unemployment rate still below 4%, right in the Fed's sweet spot, another rate hike may not be necessary. The dovish undertone scared the fear out of the VIX or volatility index as it had its biggest five-day drop in 21 months. Bond yields tumbled from their recent highs, the dollar had its biggest slide since July, and oil prices fell below $81 per barrel. And right on cue, stocks turned higher, as they tend to do when November comes around, with the Dow popping 5% for the week, its best week in a year. The S&P 500 jumped 5.85% and the Nasdaq gripped 6.6% higher, their best week since, well, last November. There's something about the 11th month of the year that just feels right like a cashmere sweater on a Sunday morning. And that reversal triggered what is known as the Zweig breath thrust indicator. It's that very rare indicator when stocks whip from oversold to overbought conditions inside of two weeks. As the good people at Ned Davis Research point out, since World War II, the S&P 500 is higher a year later every time that has happened. Let's see if that streak continues. We're going to get deep on seasonality with Jeff Hirsch of the Stock Traders Almanac in just a few minutes, but we got to give it up for some of our favorite technical indicators that went off last week. That's what we're here for, my friends. So let's gather around for our big three of the week. Number one, as mentioned, the unemployment rate ticked up slightly to 3.9% last month. The Federal Reserve considers full employment to be between 3.5% to 4%. So the labor market is right in that sweet spot. But if the unemployment rate keeps rising, it could trigger what is known as the SOM rule, named after former Federal Reserve economist and current Bloomberg News contributor Claudia SOM. The SOM rule maintains that recessions usually begin when the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate rises by half a percentage point or more relative to its low during the previous 12 months. 
As a reminder, the low for the unemployment rate so far this year was 3.4%. October's rate, 3.9%. That was the highest so far this year, following a couple of readings at 3.8%. Now, the actual arbiter of when recessions begin and end is the National Bureau of Economic Research. The NBER is an eight-person committee that examines multiple economic indicators, including real personal income less transfers, non-farm payroll employment, employment as measured by the household survey, real personal consumption expenditures, wholesale retail sales adjusted for price changes, and industrial production to determine when a recession began and when it ended. So SOM's rule is a little less inclusive, but it's been pretty accurate historically. But the U.S. economy today is a little out of whack, to put it into technical terms, given the push and pull since the pandemic ended. The labor market is a classic example of that. And even Claudia Sam, who runs her own consulting firm, admits that the rule that was named after her in 2019 may be out of style. In a recent interview, she said, quote, I've created a monster. So Halloween of her. Number two. Apple has lost a lot of its juice lately, if you hadn't noticed. The world's largest company by market cap just reported its fourth consecutive quarterly decline in sales. That's the worst stretch for the iPhone maker going back 22 years, back when Steve Jobs was running the show. Apple reported its quarterly results last week and issued a pretty tepid holiday sales outlook, despite the fact that its new iPhone 15 sales should be better than expected. But Apple has a China problem, and that's a big problem for Apple given that China is its third biggest market after the US and Europe. The iPhone is facing increasing competition from Huawei and its new phones and increasing government regulations. The Chinese government recently banned the use of iPhones for all government use, and there are concerns that it could extend the ban into other sectors. Shares of Apple, one of the most widely held stocks on the planet have fallen 10% since that ban went into effect, and it's not a surprise that Apple CEO Tim Cook made a little trip over to China earlier this fall. Despite the goodwill visit, sales fell 2.5% in China last quarter, more than expected, and there's growing concern that smartphone sales in general are kind of slowing. In the quarter ended in September, U.S. smartphone shipments shrank 19% from the prior year, including an 11% decline for the iPhone. You know who else is feeling Apple's pain? Berkshire Hathaway. It's Apple's largest shareholder, and Apple's slide was a big part of Berkshire's $24 billion loss in its equity portfolio over the past quarter. And number three. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. How are you feeling? We have the latest feels from our bi-monthly sentiment survey, and we're all still a little bit shaky. More than half of us say we are still pretty worried about recent market events, and after the past couple months, why wouldn't we be? 50% of us say we've changed our investment approach, making safer investments, and about a third of us are investing less. The main reason? We think the market has further to fall. Our number one worry? The war in the Middle East. Two-thirds of respondents are concerned about what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and what could happen if things get worse. Persistently higher interest rates are second on the wall of worry, and that higher for longer refrain has become the soundtrack under our portfolios, and about a third think a recession is inevitable over the next 12 months. That's a new high for that kind of pessimism. So what are we doing with our money? Those of us who are worried about the stock market continue to search for safety in the bank, buying CDs, high-yield savings, and money market accounts. But if you drop 10 grand on us to buy whatever we wanted right now, stocks are now back on top of the list, just eking out CDs for the first time in several months. And most of us believe that stocks are still the ticket to creating long-term wealth. We are the believers. And we're not alone in our feelings either. No surprise. Most of the other sentiment gauges we pay attention to are also showing peak trepidation, at least for this cycle. The AAII bull bear spread is at its lowest level since March. B of A's bull bear indicator is at its lowest level since November of 2022. And CNN's fear and greed index is showing extreme fear. 
the highest level since October. Some would say this is all a pretty strong contrarian indicator. When fear peaks, the market usually turns higher. Was that what last week was? To wit, the put-to-call ratio, which measures the volume and velocity of puts or bets against a rise in the market, against calls, bets that the market will rise, is just coming off its most pessimistic level since March. And we're heading into the seasonally strongest time of the year for stocks. This could get really interesting. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and the last big batch of corporate earnings are heading our way. We'll get results from widely held companies including Uber, UBS, Occidental Petroleum, Rivian Automotive, Disney, and Warner Brothers Discovery, among others. The New York Fed will issue its quarterly report on household debt and credit on Tuesday, gauging the financial condition of U.S. households in the third quarter. We already know that revolving consumer debt, which includes credit card debt and home equity loans, is at an all-time high thanks to those high interest rates and our prolific spending. On Friday, we'll get a timely consumer sentiment reading from the University of Michigan, which will issue the Consumer Sentiment Index for November. Consumers have been feeling pretty cautious. We're just not acting that way when you look at retail sales and GDP growth so far this year. We'll also be keeping a close eye on those treasury bond yields. They have a big sway in the capital markets, and if they keep declining, bringing the dollar down with them, the bulls are likely to keep on running. You can feel the change in the season all around us. It's sweater weather. Fireplaces are crackling. Leaves are piling up on the streets. We just set our clocks back and hopefully the bears are going into hibernation. If you are a lifelong reader of the Stock Traders Almanac like millions of investors like me, you'll know we're about to head into the seasonally strongest period of the year for the stock market, historically speaking. The Almanac has been by my side for my entire investing and journalism career, and it's chock full of those investing axioms that are so useful for putting the market seasonal and historical moves into perspective. No one embodies this more than our pal Jeff Hirsch. He grew up with the Almanac, literally working alongside his father, the legendary Yale Hirsch, and he's been the editor of the Stock Traders Almanac and the Almanac Investor Newsletter for years. And Jeff is our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, my friend. How you doing, Caleb? Great to be with you, man. It's just an honor to have you here. I can't tell you how important the Almanac has been for me ever since I got into this madness. Why is seasonality so important for investors and traders, but especially investors, long-term investors? It's at the root of behavioral finance. You're tracking what people do on a regular basis, the habitual movements of their money, and most importantly, institutions. I mean, there's news and things that are happening just recently in October. And it's amazing that, uh, you know, somebody said to me, do you really think it's seasonality or the news that's going on? I said, why do you think the news is happening right now? People are trying to get things done before year end. You've got the October 31st mutual fund, 40 act fund IRS deadline where they have to reconcile transactions from the previous year's 10 months, the full 12 months and the current year's 10 months, you know, that sort of thing. And then there's just that quarterly behavior of institutions and people, I mean, you pay your bills every month at the same time, you vacation roughly around the same time each year. Maybe it shifts when your kids are in or out of school, but people are habitual creatures. Society has a rhythm and a pace to it. And that's what the epiphany my father had back in 1966 was to take all these market cycles, patterns, indicators, and lay them out in a counter format so that we could all follow the market schedule along with our own. Let's talk about Yale Hirsch, legendary guy who created this. Basically, this is kind of pre-spreadsheet, pre-computers, although there were some heavy-duty computers. How was your dad doing this? What was the inspiration? And what was his process as you followed along as you were growing up? Well, the inspiration is he was in the, in the music business. He had a degree in music from Brooklyn College on the GI Bill. 
He was in World War II. Never saw any action because he was bounced around from school to school and stuff. But his first cousin, Sam Coslow, was a songwriter. My Old Flame, Cocktails for Two, has an Oscar for a movie short, produced Copacabana with Carmen Miranda. And Sam sold his publishers to RCA for stock. Stock crashed. He lost money. He became a student in the market. Fast forward to 61, he runs an AB split ad in Barron's, you know, testing two headlines. The ad hits for this publication called Indicator Digest, which was a, ended up being a proving grounds for analysts and writers and stuff. And he calls up my father, who was in the business running his own little thing and said, Yale, I want you to run operations. I want you to be my VP. <clears throat> I want you to, you know, be my second. After a few years in Indicator Digest, and he has this epiphany to take all this stuff and put it together. It was his workbook, basically, that he published for everyone. And everyone just loved that. That's why we've been doing it for 57 years. So it, it clicks. Yeah, a lot of those axioms were so familiar with the Santa Claus rally, the January barometer, the best six-month strategy, which we're about to talk about, all invented by your dad. And then you grew up sort of in this business. What was it like on a Sunday morning talking stocks with your dad and talking seasonality? I mean, I'd go in to say goodnight to him and he'd like say, what do you think of this chart? I mean, uh, you know, constantly working around the house. Wall Street week, every Friday night at dinner on the TV in the kitchen. There was a lot of heady stuff going on. It was always world affairs and, and market action. We were pretty informed. I grew up in the mailroom, shipping books to people. I sent books all over the world. I'd go downstairs on Monday nights, Monday night football. I'd bring that little TV downstairs and we had the office in the garage and I would just Load up all the orders to all the brokers and, and all the advisors out there. And I started learning how to do the numbers by hand, which was interesting. That helps you, though, when you write it down and you realize how all these things come together, you really get your mind around those patterns. And then you've taken it into a whole new level. Uh, you got a commodities almanac going out. You've got a big paper coming out on Bitcoin. I want to get to those in a second. But we are through October, mercifully, which was rough for stocks. But it usually is some of the worst moments in stock market history come in the month of October. But now we're heading into the best six months of the year. And your dad coined this thing, the best six-month strategy. What is it about November until the end of March that makes it so special and so good for investors? It actually goes through April for the Dow and the S&P. It's the best six months. And then NASDAQ seems to have the best eight months. It goes through June. And because of all the technology influencing the world, it's sort of carrying the rest of the market to a little more best eight months. But it's the annual behavior of people. You see that selling in September. We had it again this year, especially after triple witching, which is institutional window dressing and then the collective retail market trying to fix up their portfolios for year end. And then you're getting into this period of time where you have a lot of consumerism, you have a lot of decisions being made. And it sort of dovetails with the January barometer where you have all these things happening in January, people making forecasts or giving their outlooks for the, the coming year. You have new Congresses convening. Presidents often have their State of the Union addresses, and it sets the agenda and policy for the year, and that's what gets her. So all this stuff happens, and there's a lot of money that flows into the market with bonuses and, and spending. I contend it has something to do with the daylight and the fact that most of the world's landmass is in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's like the old London season. People come back from the country in September, October, and get down to business, and then when the spring comes around, they sort of head out to the country, you know, that's where the old selling May and go away, coming back on St. Ledger's Day phrase comes from. St. Ledger's Day was the last leg of the British Triple Crown horse race, and it happens in mid-September. So you remember Downton Abbey, where they go up, you know, to the country for, and have their fox hunts and horse races and parties and stuff, and then they come back for the London season. Well, we have nowadays the sort of Memorial Day to Labor Day, summer period, 
We might play some golf. You might go skateboarding. And then everything comes back in September, back to school, back to work, institutions, clean house. And it just creates this whole float of the year. It doesn't work all the time. Right now, since 21, the four-year presidential cycle, which is another thing Yale was a big proponent of, didn't invent it, but popularized it. The almanac, you know, is on the four-year cycle schedule. We have the election year edition that's out now. But these cycles have been firing on all pistons the last three years. The seasonals, I mean, last year, typical midterm election year, bear market, October bottom. Nobody was calling it. Very few last October. I, I love being one of the lone bulls. So it's basically the, the, the rhythm of human behavior and, and how they move their money around on a regular basis, especially institutions. So after the best six months, you mentioned it, sell in May and go away. That usually, usually see a little bit of weakness that time of year in the second half of the year. And then your dad and you, you created a tactical seasonal switching strategy. It's not that so that you, that you notice this, you created a strategy for actually moving money during that period. So what does that look like usually, or what did it look like this year? This year, the NASDAQ after June tactical sell was great. April was a little early, but we came back to that. So we use MACD, Moving Average Convergence Divergence, invented by Jerry Appel. Jerry's no longer with us. The late Cy Harding put in his book, called it the best mechanical system ever, where you take the best six months that Yale created, MACD that Jerry created, and you get this great timing indicator. I mean, people often misuse MACD. It's, it's really something that's to confirm another reason to buy or sell or enter or exit. So every year on October 1st, or sometime, we start looking for our MACD buy signal. And we had that a little bit early this year, it came on the 9th. So we went in on October 10th. It would have been Yale's 100th birthday on the 23rd of October. And I did a little tribute to him out there on social media and my blog. And the market's going down on Monday. He also came up with the phrase, don't sell stocks on Monday. So I bought some more stocks on his birthday as I put out that little piece on him. So Tactically, we get long around October. It can happen anytime after October 1st. Sometimes you've had them as late as, as November. And then once we get into the spring, on or after April 1st, we look for a sell signal for the Dow and the S&P. I think that was April, uh, mid-April this year, the date's escaping me. But June 22nd was the sell for the NASDAQ, which was quite timely. And we don't go away. We reposition May through July. We sell losers, underperformers, we hang on to our winners, we tighten up stops, limit new long positions, switch into some bonds. This year, it's nice to have a little interest to, to park your cash in. Then we ride out the, uh, the summer. And then when we get into this annual seasonal buy spree, the, the autumn buying period, we not only get into Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, Russell, ETFs, which I own, we also have a whole sector rotation seasonal strategy. So most of the stackers come into their bullish season right there in October. And then we're going to be picking some stocks. And that's where, where you get some real juice. We combine fundamentals and technicals with the seasonality. And, you know, like last year, Super Microcomputer was one of our picks. So uh, that was pretty sweet. So there are folks like me who just have the almanac at their side or online. And there are folks that actually subscribe to your newsletters and to your picks and to access to you guys. So you've taken the almanac from just being this literal Bible by the side of investors and business journalists like me into a service for investors if they want to sign up for it. folks. We'll put the links to that in the show notes. Check it out. So you talk about seasonality. It is pretty dependable if you look at it over time. But then, Jeff, there are the black swan events that nobody can predict. And these definitely have an 
an impact on the market, sometimes for a short period of time, but sometimes they do have some legs and they change the fundamental overall look. How do you deal with black swan events when you plug them into the almanac or when they happen? You can look at some of these and we have very often they're, they're short term and the market rallies after that, you know, like the COVID low and same thing with last year and, and you know, Russia, Ukraine, and also what's going on right here in the Middle East and the world right now. You can't really account for them, but you have to just remember that they're short term events. These crises have happened for many, many, many years, decades and beyond. And yet the market still continues to go up over the long haul with these little drops and you got to honor the stops on a lot of your positions. And for example, in 22, most of our positions were stopped out of by the time we got to our April sell signal for the best number of six months. And you just, you got to have an exit strategy. You use your buy limits. You don't chase stocks. I mean, one of the things that we do that a lot of newsletters don't do is we don't just tell people what to buy. We tell them when, at what price, where to put your buy limit, where to put a stop loss, when to raise the stop, and then when to sell. One of the things that he taught me early on was to sell half on a double. You know, you take your initial investment off the table, let the rest ride. So you have to realize that these events happen and be prepared. You know, well, diversification doesn't hurt. I mean, that's something people will be dealing with with their advisors and, and their own strategy, not just the our switching strategy stuff. It's not just enough to have the calendar, the almanac, and the historical background on what happens when th things do happen. You actually have to tactically manage it, which is super important, and that's what you guys are teaching through the almanac and all of its services. All right, we're entering an election year now. What should investors expect regardless of the outcome? What do in election years do to the stock market? I want to get into elections, but I just want to go back for a second if I can. You made a great point about not just sticking to the calendar. I mean, that's our foundation, but- we have our five disciplines. You know, we're looking at fundamentals, technicals, monetary policy, sentiment, and seasonals. And we have it our market at a glance in the, in the newsletter. And also in the back of the almanac is the record of weekly indicators, which we turn into something that's a feature in the newsletter where you, you track what the Dow did on Friday and Monday, what the indexes did for the week, what the new highs and new lows are, what the you know advanced declines are, and put call ratios and that sort of thing. So all that gets figured in just in the tactical maneuver. But election years, you know, the four-year cycle is based upon the presidential election. No other country on the planet has a regular election on the same day every four years. Ours is coming up. Three election years is strongest. That's the one we're in right now. We had that sweet spot of the four-year cycle from the Q4 of midterm year to Q2 of the pre-election year, just delivered right on schedule. And looking at election years, which had a couple of rough ones in 2000, if you remember the undecided election, 08, we had the financial crisis. But in general, election years are, are pretty solid and they're better when you have a sitting president running for re-election. I know people have their opinions on the actual individual. I talk about the cycle and what it means when there's somebody who's running for re-election, campaigning from the bully pulpit, having his or her at some point finger on the pump, being able to prime the pump, which is what makes the third year so strong. So in years when you have a sitting president running for election, S&P is up 12.8%. In an open field, when nobody's running, you have minus 1.5%. You've got uncertainty when there's nobody running for election, whereas when somebody's in there, the market hates uncertainty. Whereas if there's an actual individual in there that's got at least a chance of being reelected, you have the potential for economic, civic, and market conditions to remain the same. And people know where to place their bets and position their portfolios. 
So fascinating. It's not so much about the person, although that's what gets all the headlines. Of course, that's what's getting in everybody's head, but it's really about the season and the time of and the year of that election cycle. So fascinating. All right, you have the Bitcoin seasonality study. Is Bitcoin actually seasonal or does it just follow the whales or are the whales seasonal? And that's why Bitcoin may be seasonal as well. I would argue that it's seasonal and the whales are seasonal. And there are, as with the market, periods of time when there are other forces that are more powerful. We put that Bitcoin seasonality study out end of September, right at what the annual low is in the charts that I put together. And, you know, I was asked that that question I mentioned where, you know, oh, do you think it's the news or, or it can't be seasonal? I said, that's why the news is coming out now, because they're trying to get all these things through before year end. I picked up a little position in um, GBTC. We found over the years that the positions you're most nervous about are often the ones that do best. That's the one that's outperforming in my portfolio right now, which I'm, I'm happy with, but, you know, fascinated by. And there's um, an old saying, I don't know if you remember the name Edson Gould. He did a news newsletter findings and forecasts back in, I think he passed away in 87, but his quote that I referenced, and when seasonality is not working, I'll always throw it out there that if the market doesn't go up during the bullish season, there are other forces that are more powerful to play. When that bullish season is over, those forces may really have their say. So I'm watching right now. I mean, where everyone's aware that there's a, a, a usual Q4 rally. They miscall it the, the Santa Claus rally from time to time. But if that doesn't happen, it'll be concerning. We'll begin to tactically adjust and make some audibles. And then there's the, the January indicators. You know, Yale invented the Santa Claus rally and the uh, January barometer. This is also the first five days. And since January has seen some profit taking, I've been a little rougher last several years. We created the January indicator trifecta about 10 years ago, taking the Santa Claus rally the first five days and its full month January barometer. So I'll be looking very closely at that. Like we did in, tw in 22, ahead of the invasion of Ukraine, we didn't have all three up. So we got even more cautious, already cautious in a midterm election year. This year, coming into a pre-election year, looking pretty bullish with everything setting up as well. We hit the January trifecta. We sort of shifted to our more best case scenario. So that's what we're going to be looking at, you know, going through the next several couple months. Totally fascinating. All right, Jeff, you love market history. You literally grew up around it. You helped create it. You're a historian of your own right. What's your favorite sort of stock market book or movie that sort of encapsulates it the best for you? Which one just uh, sings to your heart? I always love Wall Street, the movie, you know, with Michael Douglas. There's a few of them. I caution people that my, my sense of humor sometimes <laughs> it takes over here. The Wolf of Wall Street, I just cracked me up with uh, McConaughey and DiCaprio. And, and I remember those boiler room things. It's, it's a bad example of what, what happens on Wall Street. But you got to remember that there's that whole mentality out there. And of course, there's trading places, which is a classic. And there's so many books. I mean, the one book is our book, The Stock Trader's Almanac, for me, you know, that's the one that I live on. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Investopedia is a site built on our terms. You guys have been around a little longer than us, but we're 24 years old, full of financial terms and definitions. I got to know, what is Jeff Hirsch's favorite investing or finance term? Santa Claus Rally. It's so misunderstood. It's something that comes out of our work. It encapsulates seasonality and the almanac. So, you know, and I use Investopedia a lot. I mean, we go there. It's, it's just, uh, it's very useful. 
Thank you. We go there too. So we are mutual fans and, and so glad to have you on The Express. It's such an honor. Jeff Hirsch, folks, the editor of the Stock Traders Almanac and the Almanac Investor Newsletter. Thanks so much for being with us, my friend. Thank you, Caleb. Appreciate it. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Ajav, who hit us up on the gram, suggesting convertible preferred shares for the term of the week. We love that term because convertibles are an important way some investors are able to back companies that offsets their risk while potentially providing big returns if things go well. According to our favorite website, convertible preferred shares are corporate fixed income securities that the investor can choose to turn into a certain number of shares of the company's common stock after a predetermined time span or on a specific date. The fixed income component offers a steady income stream and some protection of the invested capital. However, the option to convert these securities into stock gives the investor the opportunity to gain from a rise in the share price. After a preferred shareholder converts their shares, they give up their rights as a preferred shareholder and become a common shareholder, but they can sell their shares at any time and bank a profit should they choose. Great suggestion, Rajav. You just helped make all of us a little bit smarter. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week. The 93-year-old's Berkshire Hathaway reported quarterly results this past weekend, and the conglomerate posted a 40% rise in operating profits against the same period last year. It had some losses in its equity portfolio, though, given its outsized stake in Apple. Berkshire Hathaway is Apple's largest shareholder, as you know, and Buffett and Munger are sitting on an enormous pile of cash, $157 billion worth as of the last quarter. They just can't seem to find anything to buy outside of companies in Japan anyway. Buffett, though, has no problem holding cash. Why would he? Here he is at the 2022 shareholder meeting talking about why he likes those big stacks. We believe in having cash and uh, there have been a few times in history and will be more times in history where if you don't have it, you don't get to play the next day. I mean, it, uh, it's like oxygen, you know. I can see how $157 billion can help you breathe just a little bit better. Warren Buffett, the GOAT. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Jeff Hirsch of the Stock Traders Almanac for climbing aboard the Express. We love that book, and we'll link to it and Jeff's blog in the show notes, along with all the other reports we cited on this ride. Find those wherever you ride the Express and on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.